0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Millions more, over 33 million Americans filing for unemployment benefits in just seven weeks blame game president trump ramps up criticism of china beijing hits back and vaccine victories the ceo trialing a very small dose that may go a long way in the fight against covid 19 it's thursday let's make a move Welcome, as always, to our first movers all around the globe. Great to have you here. Coming up this hour, as you heard me mention there, we speak to another innovator whose team is hard at work to find a COVID-19 vaccine. We'll have all the details, and we need it more than ever today. After seeing the latest numbers for those claiming benefits here in the United States. An additional 3.2 million people to be more precise in the US filing for the first time in the last week. The total now more than 33 million people since mid-March. What's clear is that we're looking at depression level era unemployment. The crucial question now becomes when and how quickly will these jobs come back? Today's numbers are just our first big data point from May and it points to another dire month for jobs losses and the jobs market. Big U.S. companies like Uber, GE, Airbnb have all announced deep layoffs this month. United Airlines said cuts are coming in the fall. MGM Resorts say that some of its 63,000 furloughed workers could be let go permanently. And yet, just take a look at this contrast, a look at U.S. futures. We continue to price for perfection in the reopening of U.S. economy even before U.S. caseloads of the virus begin to reduce. That's the conundrum here. Europe, take a look at this. Uh, the focus, have to say, is on what's going on in the United Kingdom. The Bank of England saying that the economy could fall some 14% this year, its biggest annual decline on record. However, they are also forecasting a recovery that seems nothing short of miraculous, dare we hope. Well, we'll have all the details on that next quick look at Asia as well, where stocks are mixed, though a glimmer of light, perhaps in the rise in exports from China, despite a huge drop in imports. Perhaps no surprise as the services sector there contracted for a third straight month, even after lockdowns ended. The challenge of reopening is clear. It must be done cautiously. And that's even with scaled testing and tracing. Hmm. Let's get to the drivers and give you more details on today's job numbers. Christine Romans joins us this morning. Christine, whichever way we look at this, we are now comparing the job losses, the furloughs, the pay cuts and and the damage in this jobs market to what we saw in the Great Depression. It's out of memory.
2: History making, you know, and, and there are those who would say this is going to be a very terrible global recession with an asterisk. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, because in the United States at least, we've put people out of work sort of on purpose, right? This, there's no playbook for this. We've sidelined the American worker to protect health care system and to protect the health of the country. But we don't know how we're going to reopen exactly and what it's going to look like coming back. We don't know, as you rightly point out, what percentage of these jobs will very quickly come back and what kind of damage might be done more permanently to some parts of the labor market and some industries like leisure uh, and
1: travel. Sting, as well, in light of this, that we are now getting hints, at least as far as CNN reporting is concerned, that the White House is saying it's not going to adhere to the CDC's guidelines for what reopening looks like. It comes, as we know, there aren't enough tests to do what other nations have done. Our caseloads aren't coming down in the same way that other nations have too. I can't help but look at this all and be frightened for what reopening looks like. and means. It means to me that recovery will take longer. It has there- to
2: is so much risk. There is so much risk going forward here. Uh, I mean, there could be a new wave of the disease later this fall. There could be, I mean, the the curve in New York is going down. The rest of the country, though, it is not. The new cases are still rising, and that is really a big concern. Uh, And you have sort of different, different strategies all over the country. What will bring back consumer confidence? When will employees feel safe to go back to work? When will people feel safe shopping again? Uh, We just don't know what is gonna happen next. Again, I go back to this same old, same old, I sound like a broken record, there's no playbook for this we hope that millions of these jobs can come back online quickly as the reopening happens but there uh, are are some jobs that I'm not sure will come back I think that the sharing economy has been hurt in the near term the leisure economy as well it could take years to get back to the air travel levels that we saw uh, last year so even as we're talking about reopening there's still a lot of pain and suffering for individuals in the labor market right now with no clarity on what a reopening will, will that a reopening will bring back their jobs Julia
1: I know. I want to end on a positive note, but I'm struggling, to be honest. My fear is even when we look at the, the numbers tomorrow for the payrolls report, it just doesn't capture the percentage of people that have been impacted by this. And then we can reiterate all the challenges that you just mentioned. The damage here is wider than we realise. I can find one positive
2: note, sort of. Thank and you. that is, if you look at the last five weeks, there have been fewer first-time unemployment claims each week. The numbers are staggering. They're very big, but they're going slightly down. My hope is that April was this hellish month for the American worker, for, for American consumers, for American families. And next month will be hard, too. But I'm, I'm hoping this is the trough here.
1: Yeah, by the time we start to get the data for next month, the pickup as economies states reopen will have already been in there, but just not captured in the numbers. Thank you for the silver lining. Christine mm-hmm. Romans, thank you for that. Meanwhile, the blame game continues. China firing back at the United States as President Trump continues to criticize Beijing, saying the virus could have been stopped in China. We want to urge the US side once again to stop spreading false information. Stop
2: misleading the international community take a good look at its domestic problems and try to find out
1: ways to control the pandemic in its country as soon as possible, rather than continue playing the blame game. Ivan Watson, live in Hong Kong for us. There's truth on both sides here. Perhaps if the holiday travel, the New Year holiday and travel hadn't have happened, this wouldn't have spread so quickly. Um, The criticisms are true as well, perhaps, of the United States handling of this. Where does this go, this rhetoric, Ivan? Does it remain that?
3: Uh, You know, I saw somebody describe it, and I'm paraphrasing here, calling it the scold war between Beijing and Washington. And basically you have this rhetoric heating up between the two governments. Uh, President Trump this week, he compared the pandemic to an attack on the U.S., which he said was worse than the attack in World War II against Pearl Harbor, uh, worse than the 9-11 terror attacks. The Chinese foreign ministry responded to that. Take a listen to what they had to say.
4: If they say the pandemic can be compared to Pearl Harbor or 9-11, the enemy the U.S. faces is the novel coronavirus. When faced with humanity's struggle with the same virus, I think the U.S. should fight side by side with China as comrades in arms instead of enemies.
3: And as you heard in that earlier clip, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson also said, hey, the the US government seems to be trying to distract from failures at home and trying to play the blame game against China. Chinese state media has been far less diplomatic An anchor for Chinese state television went so far as to claim that the U.S. is the world's largest exporter of the novel coronavirus. You had other uh, newspapers calling this political blackmail by the U.S., passing the buck. And the government in Beijing has accused President Trump and the Republican Party of using this scapegoating of China as a political strategy to help with the upcoming november presidential election and given that we're still months and months out from that if if this is the kind of pattern we're going to start to see i i, I can't even imagine how nasty the rhetoric could get if things keep going this way uh, in the weeks and months ahead julia
1: Yeah, i couldn't agree more with you i think the hope is that it remains a scold war as you called it and rather than are uh, seeing any formal action that impacts economies that are already weakened by uh, fighting this virus. And I think that's one of the, uh, the critical elements here that we still don't know. Ivan, great to have you with us. Ivan Watson joining us there from Hong Kong. So another dire warning now, this time in the UK and from the Bank of England. The country is heading for its worst recession in 300 years. The central bank says GDP will shrink 14% this year, and employment could hit 9%. Anna Stewart joins us now on this story. Anna, I can't help, despite how awful these numbers are, and they are truly awful, compare and contrast to the unemployment rate that we're talking about potentially in the United States and and the fact that this looks so much lower. Talk us through the differences here and then we'll talk about the future.
5: Yes, it's an interesting one, because actually, despite there being some really dire numbers from the Bank of England, much to be positive about Uh, the second quarter, the UK's economy will shrink by 25 percent. But that is a lot better than some previous forecasts. And they see a very swift recovery in the second half of next year, almost a V-shape, I would say. Unemployment, you're right, Uh, sharp rise in unemployment for the second quarter, up to nine percent. That's the expectation. That is high. That is nowhere near as high as stateside. And I know you're waiting for those numbers for April tomorrow. Uh, Now, part of this is due to the government furlough scheme. The government pays 80 percent of wages of those people that have been unable to work through the pandemic due to lockdown. And actually getting some early data from the Bank of England of just how many companies and workers have taken this up. 800,000 businesses applied for the furlough scheme that covers some 6 million workers. So that is why there is a lid on unemployment. Of course, getting them back to work will be very difficult.
1: Yeah, how do you wean people off those kind of benefits, particularly when they've been done directly? It's um, it's an interesting question, and it clearly ties to what you mentioned there, which was a V-shaped recovery despite the fact that this has been done to fight a virus. And we don't see caseloads coming down in the UK either. So how are they getting to this and what do we make of it, Anna?
5: Well, it was a very upbeat assessment of the economy for the next year. I'm not sure everyone completely buys it, if I'm honest. A lot will depend on this jobless number, I think, Julia. So this furlough scheme, you can't just remove it from businesses. You can't just take away the support of 80% of wages because when restaurants and cafes reopen, when they're allowed to reopen, you will not get customers through the door nearly to the extent that they used to be. So revenue just simply will not return for many months to come. Now, there must be some sort of tapering system for the furlough scheme keeping those businesses uh, alive, keeping those jobs up, because without that, that economic recovery that we see in those charts is almost certainly going to fail. So there's so much reliant on just how slowly, how gradually and how targeted uh, lifting lockdown and that furlough scheme is over the coming weeks. We should hear more on Sunday. Julia.
1: Yeah. And that's the reality for the globe. This is such an important point. We've stabilised Economies in the short term, but what does reigniting them look like under social or physical distancing conditions? Thank you, Anna. Great points. Anna Stewart there. All right, let me give you a look at some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. A gas leak at a chemical plant in eastern India has killed at least 11 people. Hundreds more are being treated in hospital. Thousands have to be evacuated. The plant is owned by South Korea's LG Chem. Operations were due to restart after the plant had been idle amid the coronavirus lockdown. Sam Kiley joins us now and has been looking at this story. Sam, what more do we know about what happened here?
6: Well, we understand uh, both from the Indian authorities and indeed from representatives from LG Chem, Julia, that about 3.30 this morning, local time, there was some kind of leak that was discovered the company says by an employee was taking a look at the factory ahead of possibly reopening as part of india's very tentative efforts to get the economy back working after uh, many weeks of lockdown in the world's biggest democracy 1.3 billion people remained largely economically inactive but in those small hours it would appear according to a company spokesman who said that this needs to be investigated the liquid um, styrene somehow converted, while it was in storage, into a gas or vapour and was able to spread through the town, uh, killing 11 people. Now Indian authorities say some of those 11 people may have died as a result of motorcycle or car crashes or indeed falling off balconies as they were rendered unconscious. But clearly there have been a very large number of people affected by this gas. Uh, some two dozen people still in hospital, some of them in critical condition, who must have taken a very heavy dose of this da- gas, Julia, because it's not normally in moderate doses fatal. It's not as bad as anything like as bad, of course, as the Union Carbide explosion in Bhopal in the 1980s that killed three and a half thousand people. But it is echoes of that that, of course, reverberate whenever something like this happens in India. The Indian authorities have said that they will pay $131,000 equivalent in rupees to victims' dead or the victims' families of people who perished in this accident. And they say they're wanting to take most of that from the company. The company is saying that they are going to be conducting alongside the Indians an investigation into what went on here. But it also points really to the problems of reigniting. You were talking there uh, reigniting economies if you're reigniting factories getting them back on track when they've been mothballed or left essentially moribund for some time there are dangers clearly that are going to be associated particularly with these complex industrial operations julia
1: yeah uncharted territory in so many ways and this is an example of it sam Kylie, thank you so much for that update there All right, let's move on now. One of two American ex-soldiers detained earlier this week in Venezuela have appeared on the country's state TV. In a heavily edited video, Luke Denman said his role was to seize control of an airport and bring in a plane to fly Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro to the United States. The Venezuelan government says it foiled an attempted coup organized by a U.S. security firm. Hmm... All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, we hear from a company trialing a treatment it claims can vaccinate millions against coronavirus at a fraction of the cost of rival drugs. And later in the show, as we stay home, social media has been wild with animals that aren't. Well, a game called Animal Crossing is driving up profits for Nintendo. We've got the details. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we see U.S. stock market futures on track for a positive open this morning. We're actually looking at gains, as you can see, of almost 1.5%, if not more. The hope here, I think, for investors is the worst of the U.S. economic downturn is now behind us. All this as the number of people filing for first-time jobless claims since mid-March rises to more than 33 million people. That's 3.2 million in the last week alone. There's a real disconnect, I think, between the data that we're seeing and what investors are seeing too. But that's the way markets work. In earnings news, shares of ride-hailing app Lyft are set to rally over 15%. Losses narrowed and ride demand seems to have bottomed in mid-April. Meanwhile, fintech companies Square and PayPal say business also stabilised in April Too, Hilton Hotels. Meanwhile, suspending its dividend and share repurchases. But it says it has enough cash to last the next 18 to 24 months as bookings plunge. And that's key. How long does it take to return to life as we know it? Well, key to that, we believe, a global vaccine. San Diego-based Arcturus Therapeutics is planning a human clinical trial this summer for their potential offering. The company says a relatively small amount of the compound could vaccinate millions of people. I'm excited to say Joseph Payne is the president and CEO of Arcturus Therapeutics, and he joins us now. Joseph, fantastic to have you on the show. There's something very specific about the vaccine that you are developing and I need you to explain why such a small dose could potentially be so potent.
7: Uh, absolutely, uh, Julia. And by the way, it's good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, our, vaccine, our vaccine is a, a, a messenger RNA vaccine, which puts us into a special subgroup of the, the many vaccines that uh, the global scientific community are, are pursuing. But uh, at Arcturus, we have a special type of messenger RNA vaccine called self-replicating mRNA. So it means that once this messenger RNA molecule is ejected, that it not only makes a, a small amount of the desired antigen or the desired uh, spike protein, but it continues to do so. So uh, because of this technology, it means we can lower the dose substantially. And this is very important, as you can understand.
1: And it's described as a single-shot solution, too.
7: Yes, yes. You, you know, as we've engaged many, many countries around the world, you can understand the, the, the importance of the logistical distribution of the vaccine as well. And a single-shot vaccine versus a shot plus booster or a two- or three-shot vaccine over months uh, can be very challenging. So uh, it, 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 we check all the boxes with this vaccine. Not only is it a potential single shot, and a very low dose. But you combine that with the ease of manufacturing, the feasibility of manufacturing this vaccine. Uh, it means that we can make uh, a significant impact in, in millions of people.
1: I mean, just to give people a sense as well, one kilogram could equate to 500 million doses. So to your point, whether you're talking about developed economies or perhaps more importantly, developing economies, these aspects of the science here are so critical. I mentioned in the introduction human trials in the summer. Why wait so long? Because I know you've done animal trials already and clearly the whole world is desperately hoping that, that we can accelerate this science as quickly as possible.
7: You know, I, absolutely. Our animal trials were very successful. We had 100% conversion in the animals we tested at uh, very, very low doses, so highly encouraging. Uh, we're cautiously excited about the data and we need to get this into human beings as soon as possible. Uh, we're engaged in manufacturing the vaccine as we speak and uh, we aim to ship that uh, for in, in June. And then uh, as soon as possible thereafter, we can initiate the trial. So if we can replicate the results that we just saw in animals, this would be a very big deal. and and we're excited to live into that potential.
1: Give us a sense of timing then, including the time it takes to do the human trials, to analyze the data, to decide, get approval, perhaps to really ramp up uh, the manufacturing of this. When could we see it on the market and being used more widely?
4: Well,
7: uh, Julia, that's a great question. It's a fair question. People always want to know when we can get this, you know, publicly distributed. So uh, it's important to, well, after after a human being would be uh, injected, we'd have to measure the antibody titers within a period of time. But because the, again, this is a single shot vaccine, it won't take a long time to evaluate efficacy and safety in the clinic. Uh, so uh, you know, within thirty days after we initiate. Uh, clinical trials will have some uh, very early data to share and hope we'll start to see some of the uh, the data that we expect and that and and to what degree it will match what we've seen in animals and that doesn't take very long Uh, measuring antibodies is an easy thing Um, and and it's not just antibodies we have to make sure it's the correct antibodies the neutralizing antibodies the, the the antibodies that protect or or protect the individual from from the COVID nineteen virus itself. Uh, so this does not take a very long time. Um, our first trial is in seventy six people. That's not a large number. We are including the elderly, and we hope to get a very clear idea of the dose right away. Once we lock in the dose and confirm that it is a very low single shot vaccine, then we just engage in manufacturing. And thankfully, our process is very scalable. We've engaged Catalent recently and did a press release on that. Uh, they're one of the world's largest, most uh, 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 efficient manufacturers, and okay. they will help us in the ability to get hundreds of millions of doses annually uh, is what we're hoping to live into with them. Um, and so it, it, I, I, I believe I addressed your question, though. It, it, it will take you know, a, approximately 30 days after initiating. Uh, The trial to start to see, uh, you know, early data and the very first people that that are injected with our vaccine.
1: I was just thinking there because the missing piece of this is that it was the Singaporeans that came to you in January and said, "Look, we like what you're doing. We want you to scale up." They gave you investment, and if you succeed, the Singaporean population get the first batch of doses. But when we're talking about hundreds of millions potentially of manufacturing. that's fine because it's actually a relatively small country. Are you free to sign manufacturing deals with the like of likes of Pfizer, Merck potentially here in the United States that have got real manufacturing capacity because the global population clearly is billions?
7: Yes, absolutely. You know, absolutely. A lot of good thoughts there. The, the, the Singapore government and Duke NUS Medical School in Singapore approached us in, in, in January of this year and we've made great progress with them. And you're right, Singapore is a small country. There's only about five or six million people in that country. And so we can, uh, we're definitely looking to make a, a, more, uh, a more impact outside of Singapore uh, with this vaccine. Uh, and, and with respect to partnerships, we're, we're engaged in discussions with multiple government entities here and abroad and also strategic partnerships and, and, and some of the largest uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world, and we have to evaluate all of these opportunities. Uh, there's fantastic foundations, as well, that are looking to help the developing countries, and we're in conversations with them, as you can appreciate. And uh, you take this all together, we're going to learn. To you and I are going to learn together. You know the, you know which. You know which uh, uh, partnerships are going to help us uh, mm. globally distribute this, this 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 vaccine. But in the initial phase, this is an important distinction. In 2020, we don't the the, purchaser, the purchasers of the vaccines are countries. Uh, this is an unusual commercial or business model. Our, our customers are few, and and you have you have a small number of countries that can afford to stockpile a vaccine. And initiate this process early and and the distributors are going to be the military for example so countries are the buyers and the military are the distributors and that's an unusual model and that's what we're heading into for this year but next year or in 2022 having a partnership with a, a global distributor in a more traditional sense is more likely at that time but in terms of near right now. Uh, you know, we, we need to address the needs of, of countries that, are, that want to gain access and rights yeah. to our vaccine as soon as possible, help us with funding, uh, the stockpiling initiatives for these countries, and then we can provide a very simple single-shot vaccine that is readily distributed and easily, you know, logistically um, easy to, dis- to distribute for, for, the, for these relative countries. And yeah. so that's and what it, we're headed to in the near term. It makes
1: sense. And at rel- relatively lower cost. I, yes. I mean, you've just pointed out how many barriers are being broken here in terms of innovation, speed, business model, who's buying, who's distributing. Yeah. Joseph, keep in touch, please, because we'd love to check back in with you and, uh, and with your progress. Thank you for all your work and for your team's work, too. Joseph Payne there. Great to, uh, great to chat to you and hear Thank what you're you, doing. Thank you, Thank you. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Appreciate it. All right, stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, where US stocks are up and running this Thursday. Tech is certainly leading the United States higher this morning, as you can see. uh, The Nasdaq up some 1.5%. I think an unexpected bounce, too, in Chinese exports, as we mentioned earlier last month, helping sentiment. The suggestion, perhaps that the world's second largest economy may be seeing green shoots of growth and recovery. Those numbers seemingly helping oil move higher too. U.S. crude currently up around 10 percent. Chinese growth will at least help boost oil demand despite the broader supply issues. But of course, U.S. unemployment remains a huge headwind. There were a further 3.2 million people filing for new jobless claims in the last week, bringing the total since mid-March to more than 33 million people. Harvard University Professor uh, Kenneth Rogoff joins us now for more on this. Uh, Professor Rogoff, always fantastic to have you on First Move, sir. Your thoughts about the current state of the jobs market in the United States and perhaps what some of these numbers and percentages aren't telling us about the damage wrought here?
4: Well, I mean, it's just horrific how much uh, joblessness have come has come uh, up in the United States. I, I wouldn't contrast the U.S. and Europe that much. It depends on how much this goes on. If it we snap back quickly, if a vaccine comes, if things go back to normal, a lot of these people will come back. Whereas if it lasts, I think, again, if you look at Europe, a lot of the people that they're holding on to will be let go. It's a very difficult situation. I'm afraid, I think, that this is going to last for quite a while and many of these jobs won't come back and the short-term joblessness will turn into long-term joblessness, at least for maybe a quarter of these people or more.
1: If we had to predict, and I know it's incredibly tough about specifically the US unemployment rate at year end, based on what you were seeing, an initial bounce back, but then a struggle to add more of these jobs. What unemployment rate do you think we're looking at by the end of this year?
4: Uh, By the end of this year, I think we'll still be over 10% at the end of this year. And again, the long-term unemployment will be at a post-war high, at least since they've been measuring it.
1: You made an interesting point there about how Europe's managed to stem short-term job losses with the measures that they've done, but then we could actually see more jobs being cut, depending on what the recovery looks, looks like. Just explain your thinking on that, because this is a very important point, I think, too.
4: Yeah, well, the, I mean, a lot of the European countries have basically paid firms to right. keep their work. they paid their salaries, but they're not going to be able to do this forever. They're going to do it longer, but not forever. And if you know, we go through a big restructuring after this. There are less restaurants. There are less all kinds of businesses. Eventually, those employees are going to get let go. And conversely, if we snap back, the ones in the U.S. will be brought back. Uh, so the differences are somewhat exaggerated. They're very bad in both places.
1: Ugh, Ken, it's one of the reasons why you've suggested that perhaps we need to be looking And will hone in on the United States at negative interest rates. So banks get penalized for depositing money with the central bank. They're effectively incentivized or forced, let's say, to push money out to the real economy. Is this really where the United States is headed?
4: Well, markets put something like a 20 percent chance on that over the next couple of years. Uh, But right now, the U.S., or Europe, nor Europe, nor Japan are really positioned to do this. Well, they didn't prepare for it. But I think uh, if interest rates stay this low, uh, we're going to need a tool like that in order to boost the economy. I mean, let's look at what the U.S. Federal Reserve has done. They've essentially backstopped every private and municipal debt in the economy. And that's not sustainable, again, because the economy may not come back. If it does, they'll look like fantastic. And by the way, I don't think I could have thought of anything better to do, given their instruments. But Oh,
1: we just lost Professor Rogoff there. Um, Nope, we've definitely lost him. Well, you heard in there, Professor Ken Rogoff with a, a bleak outlook, I think, not only for the United States, but across in Europe as well. Thank you, sir, for that. All right. Up next, if Google is the king of global search, Yandex is the star. We speak to Russian tech giant as it takes on the country's escalating coronavirus crisis. Sar, I meant not star. That's after this. Welcome back to First Move and to Russia now, where the COVID-19 outbreak is the world's fifth largest and growing. The country reported a record 11,000 new cases in the last 24 hours. The country's biggest tech company, Yandex, is marshalling its array of services to help. To call Yandex Russia's Google doesn't do it justice. It's more like Google, Uber, Spotify and Amazon all rolled into one. And now Yandex has launched a COVID-19 project that does everything from provide free tests to track compliance with lockdown. And joining us now is Greg Arbowski. He's CFO and COO of Yandex. Greg, great to have you on the show. I want to hone in to the tracking system first, and then we'll talk more broadly about the business. What are you seeing in terms of adherence to the lockdown? Are people complying?
8: Sure. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Um, So actually what we've done is we've provided this index, which is available on our site and in our app uh, for any of our users. You're welcome to, you know, go to our homepage and type it in and see what that index says about just about every city in Russia uh, that we track. And it ranges from a scale of one to zero to five. And and five is um, sort of the highest you can get in terms of uh, self-isolation. What we're seeing is that people are definitely uh, trying to stay home more. They're self-isolating more. Social distance is definitely working if you compare it to sort of the pre-lockdown days. And we see that certain cities are certainly ahead of that. Um, Places like Moscow have done quite a lot Uh, to actually uh, go in a lockdown mode and try to enforce um, the social distancing rules.
1: Just what percentage of the population are you connected to in some way? I just described what your business does, and it's such a huge array of things. What proportion of the, the population do you touch in some way? And is there perhaps a way for you to be able to run a tracing scheme or are the privacy concerns sort of prohibitive? For doing something
8: like this. Sure, sure. So you're absolutely right in the, in the sense that we have just such a wide array of services that I would imagine we pretty much touch just about every uh, online citizen in Russia on a, on, a, on a monthly basis, right? Whether it's search, where we're the dominant player with about 60% uh, share or in streaming video or e-commerce or ride-hailing or whatever the case may be, we do interact with quite a lot. Uh, we, we, we take privacy very seriously. Uh, the self-isolation index that I just talked about was entirely based on anonymized data um, so that uh, privacy is, a, is, a, is paramount. And, uh, you know, it's just one of the things that we're doing. But there's a lot more, uh, as you can imagine, that we're trying to do uh, to help the country manage through the uh, COVID pandemic.
1: Yeah, and I do want to talk about that. But on that point about data, there have been some questions about ranking on the search function, to what extent the government has access to your data. You know, I look at a big Russian tech company like yourselves, and I wonder how you've remained independent. What role does the government play, if any, in your business?
8: So I think just just like every other technology company in the world, uh, we have to abide by the laws of the countries in which we uh, operate and so uh if there are things uh, that are uh, illegal for us uh, to show in our search results whether that's uh, things like child pornography or information about suicides or illicit drugs then that's the things that are uh, filtered out but i have to stress that what's extremely important to us is our independence um we do not um in any way alter our search algorithms or ranking algorithms uh, on anybody's request um, and and I think that's an important function that we play that we're viewed as an independent party right uh, and somebody that is apolitical and really trying to help everybody kind of get through this very difficult time that I think we're all faced with right in the face of the coronavirus pandemic
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more I think the belief that your data is safe at this moment as well is, is of vital importance for people too. Greg, I think one of the big questions we're asking at the moment is the sharing economy. Something that was so useful to us pre-pandemic is now something that perhaps is more frightening if you're interacting with strangers. You've said that your taxi business can be profitable in the second half of this year. How do you make this work? What is the future of ride hailing and the gig economy in your mind?
8: Sure, so um, our ride-hailing business uh, has been profitable for the last five or six quarters, I would say, and I think it's one of the first ride-hailing businesses in the world uh, that is profitable uh, for this long. Um, Clearly, when your rides drop as much as they do, uh, you will come to a point where uh, you will start to lose money just because you have a certain fixed cost base that, that you're carrying while the number of trips has declined quite a lot. And I'd say Russia's no exception. In Moscow, obviously, the statistics that uh, people cite is is that um, rides are kind of down, um, you know, 40 to 50% year on year, right? Uh, And what we've actually seen is we've seen an improvement in those trends, kind of starting with the first week of April or so. Um, But I would say that what we've been able to do is we've been able to take some of the spare capacity that we now have with our drivers and repurpose some of them to other uses. For example, uh, we've, we've launched a platform to deliver e-commerce packages and uh, other uh, things for offline retailers. So if you're an offline retailer, you're all of a sudden faced with a problem that uh, consumers don't want to or can't get to the store. And so what we're offering to them is, hey, we can be your last mile, your transportation logistics provider. Come to mm-hmm. us and we'll, we'll be the last mile for you guys. We're also uh, recently launched a uh, online grocery delivery service uh, called Yandex Lavka, and that volumes there are up six times in the last four months alone. So we're also trying to take all of these people that were part of the sharing economy and trying to still provide uh, a living wage for them, if you will, a way for them to earn money still Uh, just doing other things other than ride-sharing, because that's obviously impacted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've been offering free taxi services to doctors as well, which is critical at this moment in time. Greg, we've run out of time, but please come back very soon because there's so many parts of your business that are interesting to talk about. This is just an introduction. Thank you for for what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg Abovsky there, the CFO and COO of Yandex. All right, let's move on. The German Football League has just announced it will restart on May 16th, though with some restrictions. World Sports, Amanda Davies joins us now. Wow. This is incredible, Amanda. What do we know? How are they going to restart and what will it look like?
9: Yeah, Julia, let's not, you know, beat Curve around your the bush. Enthusiasm. This is <laughs> a big. <laughs> this is a big decision. You know, we've already had France and the Netherlands drawing a line under this season this is the first european major football league to announce it is coming back we'd had that indication yesterday wednesday from the comments from angela merkel but it has now been confirmed by the chief executive of the german football league christian Seifer, that may the 16th is the date less than two weeks away football is coming back but as you mentioned there is a caveat it isn't Football as we know it, as you would expect in these times, there are lots of protocols and restrictions that have been put in place. The teams are now all in a club by club quarantine training camp. They're staying in separate hotels, training separately. We know all the players, all the officials, all the administrators who will be present at these matches will have to undergo COVID-19 tests. Uh, we expect there's only going to be 300 personnel at each game. That means no spectators, no fans. We know that clubs like Borussia Mönchengladbach have already been selling cardboard cutouts. Julia, you and I could be there in cardboard cutout form uh, in the stands watching watching these opening games of uh, the, the new resumed season but there are going to be all eyes on what happens on that first weekend the 16th and 17th of May not least from the other leagues around Europe we know there's the talks going on in Serie A today about what they're going to do here in England, Project Restart, the Premier League are having a big meeting on Friday. They've been lobbying the government to get underway again. Um, but of course, are waiting on Boris Johnson's mm-hmm. new announcement, what he's going to put in place or maybe restrictions he's going to lift here on Sunday very interesting what Christian Seifer said. Whilst he said, in his opinion, it is crucial that football in Germany resumes, he understands that All eyes will be on them, as he's put it. This is a very fragile situation. It's a probation period for German football. There's nine games of this season, nine rounds of fixtures left to play. But I think, as things stand, people, yeah, are very much looking at this first weekend to see what's happened.
1: Yeah, we'll be there in spirit, as will I think global sports fans. But keeping everybody safe, I think, is the key. Amanda, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that, Uh, Amanda Davies there. All right, First Move's back after this. Welcome back to First Move. The global lockdown has done wonders for the financial physique of exercise bike maker Peloton. Peloton is peddling into high gear this session after reporting a more than 60% jump in sales way above estimates. It's also raising its subscription growth targets. Peloton getting the last laugh after being the target of withering criticism, if you remember, for a holiday ad that many called cringeworthy. That is long forgotten as we all stay at home and uh, try to stay healthy. In the meantime, speaking of stay-at-home stocks, Nintendo says profit jumped more than 40% in the latest financial year. That's a nine-year high. It got a lot to do with the uh, newest version of the hit game, Animal Crossing. Hmm. Anna Stewart has the details. Welcome to your very own deserted island.
5: For millions under lockdown, Nintendo's Animal Crossing is a welcome escape from the headlines. The light-hearted game transports users to their own island where they can fish, farm and befriend a whole host of talking animals. They can even hop over to other players' islands, a safe way to socialize in a time of social distancing. Animal Crossing New Horizons sold 5 million digital copies in March, the most of any console title in a single month according to Nielsen's Superdata. And its platform, the Nintendo Switch, has sold out across multiple websites.
4: Just a really fun sandbox of imagination and trying to build uh, the island that you want to build um, while allowing your friends and family to, to have fun with you. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a game all about community and connecting, and it's really hitting, a, striking a nerve with uh, current audiences.
5: The game has found fans in celebrities such as Chrissy Teigen and T-Pain. Bobby Burke from Queer Eye is offering design tips to help people upgrade their Animal Crossing homes. And actor Elijah Wood surprised one player on her own island, she tweeted. Wood came to play the game's Stalk Market, where buying and selling turnips can earn you a profit. Economics are central to gaming the system. Animal Crossing has its own currency called Bells and its own central banker, a raccoon named Tom Nook. Like in the real world, savers are having a tough time in the Animal Crossing economy. Nuke recently followed in the footsteps of Jerome Powell and Andrew Bailey, slashing interest rates on all deposits. Nintendo fans, who decided the company was a better investment than its virtual bells, are faring somewhat better. With the success of Animal Crossing and the Switch, Nintendo's shares are a rare winner in this year's dismal stock markets. Anna Stewart, CNN.
1: And finally, the secretive street artist Banksy has given medical staff in Britain an inspirational new work. It shows a little boy who's dumped his Batman and Spider-Man action figures, as you can see. Instead, he's playing with a different kind of superhero, a nurse, complete with face mask and flowing cape. The picture was left at a hospital in Southampton where staff have named the piece Painting for Saints, a reference perhaps to the city's Premier League football team nicknamed the Saints. Well, I think it's our medical heroes that are our version of Saints today, I think. And we thank them all. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chastley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.